Welcome to Super Yacht Radio. We have the pleasure of being joined today by Angela Pennyfather, who is founder of the Melanesian Luxury Yacht Services. Angela, welcome. It's lovely to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Can I ask exactly where are you based from? Where's your central port? I am based between uh, Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea and Cairns, Australia. Okay, so a, a multi-hop point. Correct. Okay, lovely. Well, language-wise, um, does Melanesia have a broad spectrum of languages, or is is there one main language? English is widely spoken. Um, well, I think you'll find that between, uh, well, certainly if we put Papua New Guinea is the most linguistically diverse country on the planet with over 850 languages in a small nation. 850? Um, wow. That's a lot of correct. languages to preserve in, you it's know. a, a lot. Does everybody have their own language? I mean, <laughs> Everyone has their own language. Um, and then, of course, they all will speak the languages of the neighboring um, villages or tribes in the area. So most people, and then they'll speak their parents also will have um, languages that they brought with them from wherever they came. So most people average sort of about five languages. Wow. Um, are they are they really different languages or are they just slightly yes. different dialects? There's a bit of both, but um, largely they're all languages. And then, you know, there's a few dialects uh, in close proximity of places but yes so png alone has eight over 850 um i think if you include indonesia papua new guinea solomons and vanuatu a quarter of the world's languages are spoken in those countries some phenomenal fact like that so that wow (laughs) yeah (laughs) i I did know that there were many languages i had no idea it was that many and it also um is interesting because languages use so much in communication, um, how effectively right. you must communicate. Well. Or not. Yes <laughs> not. the case may be. Yes no. <laughs> Learning to communicate in other ways, you know, since there isn't yeah. one language. Well, I think for, uh, for an agent, uh, you know, having to communicate with all these different people in, in all these different languages, it's Yeah, definitely. You get five stars on that one. <laughs> Well, I mean, in in fairness, I don't speak 850 languages, do I? But Hopefully not. Otherwise, we'd be next, really, no. really impressed. That was my next question. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I speak my mum's, um, my, my mother's mother tongue her, from where she grew up in, in around Lay, and I speak a little bit of my grandmother's uh, tongue. But for the most part... Uh, Certainly in Melanesia and PNG, Solomon's Vanuatu parts, um, and Fiji, I mean, the whole region, uh, largely English. Uh, they were all British colonies. Vanuatu was part French. Um, but um, so in- English is spoken by most people and certainly, if not spoken, understood by a majority um, of the coastal areas, at least. Um, and then, so that, you know, Generally, people's English will be better than your your local dialect. Um, and then in parts of um, PNG, you know, they, they also have another um, language called Motu, um, which is in the old Papua side. And most people speak both, um, but they speak English a lot uh, better than we can speak their language. So we just sort of um, 
go with that. And they have a everyone has their own pidgin English as well. So <laughs> Papua New Guinea has a pidgin English which is very similar to the Solomon Islands one, but it's not identical. And then um, Vanuatu has its own as well. Um, and if I speak one, I can usually get by in the other two countries. Wow. Well, mm. I'm, uh, looking at languages, I can only imagine that that's the start of the diversity of the whole area that you are managing for um, services for super yachts. Just to go back in the story a little bit, um, you had adventures, which I can only presume probably involved yachting or water in some way before you (laughs) came back to to Papua New Guinea. They did. um, They involved scuba diving to start with. Um, Straight out of high school, I worked out of um, Cairns, Australia with a liveaboard dive company for many, many years and sort of, um, and and through my childhood as well, um, as I was growing up through high school, PNG township I was living in was starting to see an increase in crime. So I would go out on dive boats. My my parents would send me away to sea on uh, liveaboard dive vessels so that um, I was away from the towns and safer at sea. Um, and then from there, I went, probably did five or six years in the scuba diving industry in Australia and then heard these rumours um, would occasionally sweep through that there was these, you know, big fancy white boats overseas and we could work on them and it was a great way to get paid to travel. And I thought, oh, that, that sounds, sounds good. good. <laughs> I'll do that for three or four months. <laughs> so I did. I um, My then boyfriend and I jumped on a plane to Costa Rica um, where we had heard of a job that was going and we applied and we got it and ended up becoming what they call a yachty because I was hmm. chefing back then. I was a chef. Uh-huh. Um, so, yep, and stayed as a yachty for 13, 13 years. Goodness. And did get to travel? I mean, you you didn't jump into yeah, this career and ended awesome. up being docked in no. Costa Rica for the 13 years, I presume. No, no. Costa Rica for the first couple of years and the States and here, we got to travel. And I mean, I couldn't, yachting's a, it's a wonderful way for you, anyone, but certainly I think back then, you know, a young person, that was me back then, an amazing way to, to afford to see places that, you know, I, I would not have been able to afford to do myself. I got to see the salmon run in Alaska. You know, I got to do Galapagos. I got to see Cocos Islands. You know, these are things that, that they're amazing, amazing experiences. You know, to you are there to facilitate, you know, help someone else have a fantastic uh, aspect of their life, you know, in, help them to have an amazing experience on board their yacht. But sometimes, a lot of the time, you're you're lucky enough to get taken along for some of the ride, and it's um, I'm I'm never, you know, I I wouldn't wish any of it away. It was an amazing time, um, and, and, and I loved it. I'd imagine as well um, that it was a little less competitive than it is now. You know, um, just looking at how much the industry has built, or did it feel very competitive at the time as well? It felt competitive at the time. I probably was not interested in asking myself questions like that at the time. You know, you're young and all you're doing is working and then you get off the boat when when you have some downtime and you go and you, you go and explore and have a good time with your crew friends. It was competitive, I rem- but 
I don't know. I, it's always felt competitive to me. Um, and I just, I was lucky. I think also my personality, I was never someone who, you know, I think in 12 years of yachting, I worked on four boats. I was someone that stuck it out. Okay, so um, you didn't have too much rotation or changing. No. Which helps bring together the dynamics of a team and, you know, your Yeah, I like longevity. So um, you eventually tired of yachting life or had a good reason to move home? I had a good reason to move on uh, home. I wasn't tired of it by any means. My partner, um, my boyfriend, um, fiance, I think by then, got sick. He was taken ill and we had been yachting together up until that point. Um, so he got sick inconveniently <laughs> and had to come home and have some medical treatment and I we didn't anticipate the sort of serious nature of it so I said you know go home get better and and I'll I'll wait it out and you know you can come back but as it turned out um it was a little bit more serious and so I had to leave yachting and come home and so I took a a two-year break Mm -hmm. and came home and at that point, after he sort of got through his um, medical issues, he decided he didn't want to go back because he he wanted to be closer to his doctors. He was a bit anxious and he, he also felt it was time, you know. Mm. Um, and like yachting, one thing about it is it's transient. It's quick. And I think in the two years we were away, a lot changed. And so it was a good I don't know. It was just a time. I think there's also, it seems to be a time where it's fantastic to travel the world. And, but there's a certain point, particularly when you, you kind of want to settle or put your roots somewhere or, you know, not always be traveling or, you know, possibly have a family or, you know, um, right. I I think that's an age thing too. Um, and, um, for sure, by the time we came home, I think it was sort of a forced, a forced retirement almost, or forced us to consider, not retirement, but stepping away. Mm. Um, and certainly he felt like that. I didn't feel, I didn't share that um, <laughs> that sentiment. <laughs> so I actually went back to yachting for a couple of years and worked on a really amazing research boat for a couple of years. But it was, um, it was clear that, you know, y- it was better for me. It was better when we were together. It wasn't so successful when we were apart. Yachting is not great for, um, well, anything when you're away from your partner is not great. Yeah, uh, long distance relationships are challenging to yeah. all of us, you know. Yeah, and at that point, I think it, I started to think, and and some of the boats I was on at the time um, started, including the one I was working on and the research boat I was working on, decided to go to Papua New Guinea, and I met. We were doing a um, refit in Seattle and I met a um, really lovely man, a Kiwi actually, who was married to an American, lived in Seattle, but he'd grown up in PNG and he was part of this boat. It was involved in the boat I was working on and he also had his own company called um, EOS Expeditions and they, oh. he came down. Well, we, we know them. We've, we've had... Oh, you know them. Well, yeah, because um, they're doing the five deeps. So we've been catching up before their dives with Rob McCullum. Correct. So Rob Rob McCallum, who's um, 
one of the founding partners is uh, spent his childhood in Papua New Guinea and so I was on this boat in Seattle and Rob came down and he was like um, hey you know we exchanged some stories he said I heard you're from PNG and he said to me you know if you ever decide to um, leave this gig you should uh, we lead expeditions into Papua New Guinea all the time um, you know give us a shout and maybe we can we can do something together and as it Turned out, just coincidentally, um, I was thinking about leaving, and I was also, th- and I'd noticed there'd been an increased um, interest in PNG because people were starting to, uh, at that time, it was about five years ago now, people were starting to contact me through Facebook and ask me, hey, and you know, thinking about going here, can you give us any tips, etc. So. It was all just kind of this perfect, it just came together perfectly. And when Rob said that, I said, well, actually, um, I would love that. And he, they were, EOS were actually taking the boat I was on uh, to PNG. And he said, well, why don't you come along as a guide? We'll take you out of the galley and come on board as the guide. And um, so I did. And I went with, uh, went inland and we did this whole, well, Solomon's PNG. And then I went inland with uh, EOS and we were in the mountains and, by the end of it, um, I said to Rob, uh, let's keep in touch. And, uh, you know, we, we, we get along really well. And I said, let's keep in touch and um, I'll see what happens. And so about six months later, I'd resigned and it, I was like, made a decision. I didn't want to be a full-time yachty before, uh, by the time I turned 40. That was my <laughs> promise to myself. Um, and I gave them a call and it just kind of evolved from there. They, I started to contract to them and, and do all their stuff in PNG, Solomons, Vanuatu, sort of the region. And from there, I realized there was a, a gaping hole for an agent that's spe- sort of specialized just in super yachts. So there's other agents, um, shipping agents, or they specialize in cruise ships, and they, they're great. Um, but um, well, when I was guiding, I kept getting feedback from the captain saying we need there's, we need someone that's more yacht specific. Specialised. Because, um, you know, yachts are high maintenance. Yes, yeah. And we, we, we're, yachts are demanding um, mm. in, in, that, in that sense. I mean, they're also, um, they're also very kind and very, you know, they know they, they're demanding. But um, I guess I kept hearing that and I thought, you know, let's give it a go. So well, I'd imagine here we are. That, I mean, there's quite a lot of, of overlap um, to a certain extent, you know, provisions and stuff like that but there are things that are going to be a lot more specific for the super yacht industry than um because you have quite a broad range of services you know everything from your provisions to your guiding to sorting out crew visas right it 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 is and you know with the yachts i mean even i think having having been an ex um yachty or yacht crew myself it gives you that insight into the psychology of the yacht, which is sometimes lost when you're in a in a you know a country that doesn't have a lot of infrastructure, which certainly were, is often the case where I work. Um, so it was very handy, and I could see again even with provisioning, having been a chef, I could see the things that were going, uh, what chefs were asking for, and what was being delivered. And like, and it was no fault of anyone's except that they were not speaking the same language in a sense that when um, so 
I started just dipping my toes into provisioning for the chefs and then um, it just sort of went from there. Like I said, I feel very fortunate to have had that 13 years of yachting behind me to mm. um, to be empathetic to where the boats are coming from but at the same time understand the local culture and, and how to um, execute getting what they need, trying to marry marry the two of them. It, it's not easy and it's not always <laughs> seamless. Straightforward from A to B. <laughs> no, no, it's never a straight line and it's never, and it's seldom the same procedure twice. But I guess I know, I know that going into it. Um, yeah. Um, out of interest, so, what would be, I mean, I'm thinking provisioning in your area would probably be wonderful for you know, local fresh fruits and fish and stuff, but um, for specialty wines and spirits, I presume that's a little bit more difficult because they would have to be imported in? Correct. I mean, uh, fresh tropical fruits um, and, you know, sort of organic by default, there's an abundance of them all through uh, the Pacific. Um, but it's when you, um, you're right, in Alcohol, I mean, alcohol anyway to buy in the country has huge import tax uh, implications as well. Um, we, uh, Some of the specialty stuff you can't um, even get in Australia. And what, what's happening more and more is that we're seeing a lot of the yachts will come to Australia, um, Cairns or Brisbane or the Gold Coast, um, and they will stage out of here. So they'll come here bunker up, get all the things they need, all the specialty items, and then they'll sail to P&G or Solomon's or, or you know, wherever, um, and then do their trip with the guests and then either come back or, or carry on. So what I find with provisioning is just a lot of specialty fresh food items. And like I said, a lot of we get an abundance of tropical fruit, but we don't have, say, cold stone fruits or specialty lettuces or mm. things like that. So a lot of that we have to, we actually have to export it from Australia and then we have to import it into whichever country it's going to. But so I, it's quite I a process. can only imagine though, you know, if you, if you really want to go with what's local, your abundance of, of fruit and fish and fresh provisions has got to be amazing. Yeah. A hundred percent. And some boat, you know, a lot of boats uh, will just do that too. They'll say, "Look, we're going to make do with with tropical fruits, fresh, and um, and it's delicious, you know, and, mm. and there's no problem with it, and it's it's amazing, and it's organic, like I said, because there's no there's no other alternative than than to be organic." Um, so to ask you about so, something else that um, I've heard can be a challenge in the kind of Indonesian region is, I know that you are also a port agent, but there is not an abundance of marinas, I believe, in that area. How do you, how do you manage that? Um, that's true. Um, very few um, in PNG, certainly. Um, like I said, the common model at the moment that seems to be um, working is that vessels come to North Queensland, to Cairns, and they stage out of here. And from Cairns to one of the more popular ports in PNG is 30 hours steaming, um, which is closer than, say, Cairns to Brisbane, which is both you know, in Australia and the same state. So for a lot of vessels, um, that's what they're doing is they get everything ready here 
then they'll sail up and be in PNG in less than 48 hours, pick up the guests, do all that stuff, and then come back here. So it's a different kind of cruising to the Med in the Caribbean, obviously. Um, people generally don't come – well, they not generally. They don't come here for the marinas and the resorts, so they know that when they get on board – we're going anchoring and we're going adventuring. And, and that's what they come Coming for the experience. Yeah. So should you not They're call coming your, for the experience. Should you not call yourself an anchor agent? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> um, but presumably that's also one of the reasons why it would be good to have a guide is to kind of navigate the waters and know where is good to anchor and know the beautiful spots to stop is it is it difficult sure. to navigate at all in, yeah, a lot, in being a lot aware of, of reefs and um, stuff like that? It, for sure. I mean, there is still a lot of uncharted um, water in PNG. That's one of the, the reasons to have a guide on. Um, but more than anything, one of the biggest things in pre-planning any of um, my expeditions is security. It's a big talking point and it's a valid one. Um, we have PNG certainly. Um, has had more than its fair share of negative press um, to do with crime. And so that always comes up. Um, so, Can I ask crime on land what, or is piracy also an issue? Crime on land. Okay. Uh, crime on land is where we get most of the bad press. I mean, we've had issues in um, – Solomon's has also had it in the past. But, again, um, you know, the conversation usually comes up to do with an incident that's nowhere near where we're going in the highlands or something, <clears throat> a tribal war, which still happens. And then it gets bad. Um, it, it makes it to the media. And then, and we have to try and explain that that had, that's not a real risk for us where we go. Um, but turns out there's the lots of parts of the States aren't very safe either. They just don't get quite right, the same press. The, that, and a lot of the, um, the bad press stories come from built up townships and cities and you know where there's more um problems with uh, poverty and 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 unemployment etc like like anywhere i guess however with the expeditions we do um you know we they're planned most of the trips i go on and especially you know um and rob mccallum will vouch for this they're planned so that we avoid every single township that is got any you know so we go under the radar and we don't go to townships. We're going into remote areas where people are still living traditional lives. Therefore, the economy is still kind of in balance and in check. When, um, because most of the, the crime that happens in the in the cities where there is the sort of... Which isn't really going to be the destination you're bringing people to. <laughs> not the destination at all. It's it's never the destination that we never go to those places. I mean, but at the same time, you've also got, you know, we touched on the fact that there's over 850 languages and that, as you pointed out, translates to 850 potentially different tribes and culture values and rules. And so there's more importantly than the security, the importance of having a guide is that you have to be able to navigate through the cultural, um, de um, what's the word I'm looking for here, you know, sensitivities and making sure that you're not upsetting people where you go. You're not tipping the scale of uh, economy too much by spending too much money, not spending enough by paying the right people. There's a very, very 
um, <laughs> there's a very, very structured process hierarchy. Yeah, and, and hierarchy in the village, and you know, there's the chief, and then there's the councillors, and and uh, one of the things people will say all the time is, we thought we paid the right landowner, but we didn't. Um, so you you pay fees. Um, where you go and that's well, that's another big difference with with cruising the region is that the land in the country is still predominantly owned by the people it's tribal land it's not government or private ownership um therefore every single destination we we visit we have to treat like private property it would be like me rocking up in a spaceship and parking it in your front yard so that's how they see it because so what happens is when we when we pull up in an anchorage um you know the guide has to go ashore if they haven't spoken to the landowners previously and said mm-hmm. ask permission can we come can we do this this is these are our intentions because they don't know um they don't know who we are and um they don't know they don't understand and as, as the boats get bigger and bigger and we're taking them to this remote part of the world it's it's overwhelming for these communities sometimes and that's really to be honest with you, that is the true importance of having the guide and making sure that you're you're operating in a culturally sensitive way, and that you're when you leave, you're not leaving a trail of destruction for the people coming behind you, um, and for when I not even that for the community, you know you don't want to you've got to learn to share the wealth in, in these places so and that respect the cultures it, you know, that are there. A hundred percent. Or the customs as well. Um, You know, um, it was one of the things Jimmy Blee was saying of, you know, being very aware of there are certain times women will not be invited to certain ceremonies or, um, you know, knowing if if anyone's sick, that's not the time to enter in. And, you know, all these nuances of things that... I was just going to ask that, Angela. If you have um, some guests coming and they they want to explore relatively remote... Uh, areas and the guest yes. is noticeably ill um, what do you do there do, do you kind of say sorry we, we can't go to this village because there's a potential that you'll spread whatever you've got um, how, how do you manage that or if expectations the I, yeah if the, if the guest has, has arrived um, you're going off to one of these remote villages, but their guest has noticeably got something, you know, the, a fever or there's, there's some sort right. of illness that he's bringing with him. Presumably there's a danger of spreading something that might be quite common sure. in Europe, but could be quite fatal over there. How do you manage that um, as, as a guide? To, to be honest with you, I haven't been faced with that situation yet, thankfully. Um Usually it's the other way around where the guest is paranoid they're going to catch some sort of crazy <laughs> tropical disease, if I was being honest. Um, but with... I suppose it's managing expectations. Aspect, right. And with, with the with the guiding um, element as well, I think one of the things, and certainly that um, in my experience, and this is something that Rob McCallum um, also taught me early on was that you have to just be a straight shooter i think a lot of the time um people wrap these high net worth individuals up in cotton wool and i think it's just always good to be up front with them and and you know they i find that when they come to png they really 
respect and hang on to you know everything you say because they're in the middle of nowhere and they've sort of entrusted their care to you so if there's an issue like that I would probably just say straight up listen I don't think it's a good idea that you come because of the delicate nature of the situation and people like I said it's a different type of cruising clientele it's not the same people that are you know in in the med and doing the med caribbean every year and most people in my experience i most of the guests that come are really understanding and of that they really are they're 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 wanting the experience adventure (laughs) yeah they have a sense of adventure they've come for something different um and i wouldn't have a problem just asking them and i don't think I'd be surprised if any of them had a problem sort of um, obliging. And uh, for variety of, I, I mean, when you have, uh, presumably before, you know, the super yacht comes in, you've already gone through an itinerary of where the potential sure. would like to go and um, back to managing sure. expectations. So uh, of, of the biggest destination spots, because I can only imagine there's a huge variety of experiences that, people can have but what would be the more popular ones the more requested ones um there's two main areas that are popular you've got your Milne Bay region down on the eastern part of PNG um, and then you've got your northern New Britain New Island area which is um you know and depending on that's the two main sort of cruising areas um and I guess because you can do you can cover a lot in a short distance if you have to. Um, one is sort of atolls and um, lots of coral reef and marine stuff, and then the other one is very volcanic and big fish. And um, But we try often to encourage people to go inland as well and jump off the boat for two or three nights for the really adventurous people um, and go – into the highlands of, of Papua New Guinea at least. So we'll jump on a plane and bring them in. And that's becoming more and more popular. And I've got to say, if for the people that do that, which is, I guess, maybe 50, 50%, it's getting more and more popular. They are the ones that come back and are absolutely sort of blown away um, because that's really where the that's where the BBC documentaries are all about. You know, that's mm. like the colourful hill tribes and the mud men and the river people. Um, that's you know that's the bit that leaves them speechless and and sort of when they they leave, um, that's what they take away with them. And the easiest way to get around um, for is is by plane. Do you have like hopper planes between the islands or? Um, no. How do you how do you get around <laughs> boat. other than on your boat, boat. obviously? <laughs> uh, uh, pretty much just your boat. I mean, that, that is the one one thing, the drawback in some ways, but also probably the thing that saved the country in other ways is that the lack of infrastructure, um, even in a, you know, I understand in Solomons and Vanuatu, there's islands that are spread out. In Papua New Guinea, you have a massive uh, land mass there too, on the uh, on the island of New Guinea, and and yet there's no real interconnecting roads. There's one major road system, so that to get from A to B, nine times out of ten, you have to fly 
everyone has to fly to the capital city and then get a connecting plane all the way back to, you know. So that has been, that means that you get around by boat. It's um, if you and I were to travel these countries, it would become very expensive as a result. So they're not cheap countries to travel on your own. Um, and this is one of the reasons why yachting is a wonderful way to see um, these areas because you've got the boat, you know, you've got the boat and you've got the hotel and sometimes you've even got the airplane. Um, yeah. You have all the, the easiest modes of transport you at your hand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And can I also ask of um because we had been talking uh with with <laughs> services in in Australia and they were sure. talking about managing uh visas and um stuff like that. Are are there visas that you need to sort out to visit around or is it is it open to everyone how how do you negotiate the administration oh. part of things? The Papua New Guinean government has been incredibly helpful um, for tourism. They they recognise it um, the importance of it um, towards their their revenue. One of the things uh, most people can get a visa on entry. Most nationalities can get a visa on entry, and there's a couple that take a little bit more work. Some of the African nations, but um, it's not difficult. To get the visa, it's time consuming. It can be time consuming. Um, if you're entering uh, by yacht, though, they have a special category already for cruise ships, which they have um, extended to super yachts, and it's all done electronically these days. It still takes, um, you know, a couple of weeks to get the uh, okay, but they're very open. Um, and, and very accommodating. So to date, we haven't had any touch wood um, issues with um, visas for anybody because they, like I said, they, the, the government and customs and immigration have been incredibly supportive of uh, this industry and certainly of tourism in general. So, it, but it's probably something that if you're planning to visit, get in touch with you beforehand to say, I've got, you know, 10 crew coming on board. Um, just because it, it takes time to get things sorted. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have a couple of boats that are coming over the next few months and there's some um, exotic passports on there and we've already submitted for the electronic approval and, you know, the moment we get the crew, um, when a boat engages us, the first thing we'll do is ask for the crew list um, because we want to flag any possible holdups. Um, but, um, yeah, we always just say, you know, give us at least uh, two weeks um, to get it processed. And then uh, yeah, we can usually do it in 48 hours. But, okay. it you know, <laughs> it depends yeah. on the origin of your passport, like all things as well. It that depends on your origin of your passport. It depends on what's happening in the capital city on, you know, on any given day, whether it's um, for example, it's Easter Sunday, it's Easter Friday, uh, tomorrow here, mm -hmm. and here too. the government offices are basically, yeah, <laughs> same as you, I guess, um, and the government's in, in shutdown, so any of the visas we needed to process for next week, we asked for well in advance. Okay. Um, um, since it's such a, a you know, you're, you're kind of now uh, helping or on feeding into the industry that you used to be on board for, you are now on shore. But for you, what are the, 
what are the highlights of what you're doing? Because you've been building this up the past couple of years. Um, I can only presume you've had a huge increase in the past two or three years of, of super yachts coming in. Um, whereas in the busy list of, of things and organizing, which are the moments that um, resonate the best? Is it is it the being able to guide people? Is it the feedback after they've experienced your country? Is it the quiet when they've gone? <laughs> is it the quiet when they've gone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, the guiding will always be the best. You know, I the the pre-planning, the running around, the, all the behind-the-scenes stuff and all, all the things, you know, I promised myself when I left yachting. I'm like, I'm done with this. I'm not doing this anymore. And, and here I am. But the guiding, the moment I set foot on a boat and I'm in the village and I'm anchored there and I, it, it never gets tiring and I'm seeing it through their eyes for the, you know, first time every time and honestly, without sounding like a, a hippie, my heart just bursts. Mm. Like it's a, that constant reminder of all the things that are good in life. So I love that bit. I love just being there every day, waking up. And, you know, you, you see a, a kid in a canoe or an, anyone in a canoe off the back deck and, and they're there. They've come along with a couple of papayas and they don't want money. They want, they want to exchange because some of the remote areas, money's as good as useless. So the bartering system, you know, is, mm -hmm. is quite often how we do business out there. And, you know, you see someone who comes with a, a couple of papayas or some tomatoes and they, they want to exchange it for some loose leaf tea or some sugar. And I've, I've been doing that part of it for 20 years and it never gets old. And seeing that through the guests' eyes, um, and, and for them to join the dots and go, like I said to you earlier, and just say, this is amazing. Um, every single day is an absolute joy to be at sea. And that's, that's the truth. And then, yes, I guess the other sense of achievement always comes when, because we, the pre-planning is so intense and, you know, uh, itineraries get shot back, back and forth from all around the world and then the, the talk about security which takes up you know a lot of time and people come apprehensive and to see them leave just going this is the people you know this is so different and this is one of the highlights and this is an amazing trip and that feedback um makes me feel happy and makes me mm. feel proud not of myself but of the of the melanesian people that you know because we have such bad press with I, I love that these guys can go back to their little corner of the world and, and say, it was amazing. It's not what you think it is. And um, truly, and to get to truly experience, you know, the, yeah. the culture, not not just, you know, the outside view or the touristy view or the, um, but to really, you know, be able to join sure. in the experience. To immerse, yeah. Immersion is exactly the word. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine so. Um, I, you know, we get a, a little bit of that. Majorca is our, our home from home. Ireland will always be kind of home. But when you have people come and visit and, and you bring them somewhere that you've been before, but 
getting yeah. to see somewhere again for the first time through somebody else's eyes and you're like yes it is an amazing mountain you know yeah um you, yeah. Bo- you both sound like hippies now <laughs> yeah oh i'm happy to be a hippie <laughs> been a hippie for years sit around and papaya <laughs> shall we oh, well it has uh, been an absolute pleasure chatting with you angela Every time Thank you, we talk to someone, you know, if I have to say my, my favorite bit of what we do is I love hearing um, people's stories that you get to ask on radio in a whole different way. But, you know, it, it's amazing how, particularly in this industry, how varied people's experiences are. Um, but it, it's beautiful to hear. I have to say my bucket list is just getting longer and longer places <laughs> I want to visit yet in the world. Um, I might phone uh, Rob McCallum and see if he wants a, a guy that, that doesn't know <laughs> Two anything. Two volunteers on board. <laughs> that doesn't know anything about where you're going to send me. Um, but for for anyone listening in, um, to get in touch with you or that are considering taking a, a trip to Melanesia, it's easy to get in contact with you. Yep. You can find me on our website at melanesianyachts.com. And yeah, all our information's there. My my contacts on there, or um, or find us on Facebook. Okay, and um, get in touch. And you are get in a touch. Font of I mean information before you even start the trip. But there's nothing like somebody who has the combined experience of both culture and language and yachting built up your adventure very well so thank you guys for making time for me i really appreciate it oh well we loved hearing about it thank you for joining us yeah, that next. was angela pennyfather from melanesian luxury yacht services 